0: Uh, so we're, uh, we're in week three of our series, The Ordinary Means of Grace, and it's a series that we, we've been examining the means that God has, has given to his people uh, to experience his grace and witness to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the core of this series that we've been looking at as a church has been the question that I've kind of laid before us each week. And that is, how do we, as a church and as a people, accomplish the task that God has given to us? What are the means that we primarily communicate and display the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because, once again, as I've been saying through this series, we want to be marked by the practices or the means of grace that God has given his church. We want to be marked by the things that He has given us to accomplish our mission. We we don't want to get distracted with man made ideas that we think. Are good. We want to trust in God's ways to see the good fruit in our lives and see the fruit in this church so that the gospel of Jesus goes out from here into the world and we see lives transformed the way that our lives have been transformed. And so in week one of this series, we looked at the first means of grace, which is the word of God. God has gifted his people, his word, and we experience his grace through the preaching of his word, through the reading of his word, and through the singing of his word. And then in week two, we considered the importance of the prayers of God's people, that devotion to prayer should mark Jesus's church, not just in response to the fact that God commands us to pray, um, but Because it's through prayer that we get to commune with our Heavenly Father. We get to have relationship with Him as sons and daughters. That we have this absolute privilege to come before Him and to delight in Him. And we experience freedom and love and provision and awe as He meets us in relationship with Him. And that happens predominantly through our prayer lives with Him. And so we looked at that in week two. And this morning, we're going to consider the third means of grace that he's given his church, and that is baptism. And, and right from the start, I kind of want to caution us from approaching the topic of baptism from a, an intellectual perspective. Because what I know to be true is there's differing theological views on baptism within Christianity. And, and as a result, it's one of those topics that we sometimes default to the arguments for why our approach to baptism is the right approach. And, and I really don't want us to get lost in that this morning. Um, I'll briefly at the end kind of touch on our uh, stance on baptism as a church simply because I think it's important for those who attend here to understand our theological stance, to know where we stand and what we practice as baptism. You need to have clarity in that as people who attend here. But that's not my ultimate focus this morning. I don't want it to be the heart of what you take from this morning. Instead, I want us to be taken. By the glorious reality of what baptism is and what baptism means for every person who gets to experience it. Many brothers and sisters come here from different backgrounds and tradition and may hold different views than I do. but, But here's what I know to be true for every follower of Jesus, that baptism is special. The baptism is this beautiful thing that Jesus has given his church. And it's important for us to see baptism for what it is. Not, not merely a ritual to be completed or a theological practice to be disputed. Its meaning and it's important for all of us comes from literally the greatest act of love and sacrifice and victory ever performed in the history of all of creation. Jesus' death and resurrection. Like, baptism signifies this this important, and it's important, comes from the cross of Christ, our Savior's death, the empty tomb that we celebrate, and the fact that he has risen from the grave, defeating sin and death. And that's what I want us to focus on. And so really, we're talking about the gospel this morning. And so that's why I prayed that we wouldn't just be looking at the gospel, like, oh, I've heard it before, but we'd be in awe of what it actually means. And so in light of the glorious truth, I want to answer two main questions. Why do we practice baptism? And what does it mean? And so first, why do we practice baptism? And the short answer to that question is because Jesus commanded us to. But I'm a preacher, so you can't stop there, right? (laughs) Baptism was ordained by Jesus to be practiced by his followers as a part of the Great Commission. It is one of the ways in which we live out our witness to the gospel. Matthew 28, 18 to 19, Jesus said, he came to his disciples and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so in obedience to Jesus' command, baptism is, became a central practice of his, deci- of his disciples from the very birth of his church in the early days of his church. We're going through the book of Acts right now in our men's and women's group, and I've been kind of referencing it over the last three weeks, but we see in the book of Acts that it was regularly practiced when men and women believed the message of the gospel. They were baptized, right? When Peter preached at Pentecost, right? he preached before the men and women of Jerusalem. And They ask him after they hear this message of Jesus, what do we do? What do we do, Peter, with what we just heard from you? And Peter says to them in Acts 2, 38 to 41, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3000 souls. When Philip met the eunuch from Ethiopia, when he was on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, Right? He interpreted the prophet Isaiah's words to the eunuch. He taught him what they meant. He taught them that Isaiah was talking about Jesus Christ. And in Acts 8, 36 to 37, it says, As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What, hap- what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When the apostle Paul was struck blind by Jesus on the road to Damascus, he went back to Jerusalem. And when Ananias prayed for him to get his sight back, it says immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and he was baptized when Peter brought the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Cornelius's house and the Gentiles received the good news and the Holy Spirit fell upon them Acts 10:48 and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ when Lydia of Theatira came to faith. Her and her whole household were baptized. The Philippian jailer and his family, they heard the message of Jesus and their whole household was baptized. At the near the end of his days, at the end of Acts, 20, or Acts 22, 16, it says that Paul went to Jerusalem again. He was preaching to the people when he was arrested. And it says, now, what are you waiting for? He says to them, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's my short answer. That's the pastor's version of a short answer right there. Jesus commanded baptism, and his followers have been going through the waters of baptism ever since. Now, the longer answer why we practice baptism is woven into the second question that I want a- to answer this morning, which is what does it mean? What does baptism mean? Because, as I said, it, it's not simply a ritual to be performed. It has meaning and it has importance that comes from Jesus' death and resurrection. And all those who go through the waters of baptism hopefully understand its deep significance for them because of what it means. Which leads me to a a thought that, that echoes true for all of our life of faith. That the Lord cares about our heart. And the Lord cares about our motivation toward the practices that we do and the service that we perform and the steps we take in our Christian walk. And it's the same with baptism as with anything else. He cares about the heart more than the outward work itself because he wants our hearts to be for him. But also because he knows, God knows that empty practices performed merely out of duty, out of a sense of this is what we do, produces religious hearts. And actually what happens over time is those hearts become hardened toward the Lord as as this false belief that performing good deeds results in merit before him. As though checking boxes makes us right with the Lord. We can all kind of fall into this every once in a while thinking that if I just do the right thing, then I'm earning merit with God. The Lord desires our obedience. But I think about me as a parent. Like, I desire my children's obedience as a direct reflection of their heart's posture towards me. Like I, I want them to be obedient to me out of love and, and respect and honor not just duty. And of course, sometimes like, it, it, it does end up being that, well, dad told me to, yeah. right? So I have to, but, but it's rooted in their love and their respect and their honor of the position that God has given me in their lives. And all the parents in here, I'm sure you'll agree with this, that we know when the obedience of a child or a young person that's close to us, we know when it's rooted in love or respect or honor and when it's not. We can tell the difference, just an intuitive thing that parents have, right? Well, just as we all desire our children's obedience to be rooted in love and respect, the Lord desires our obedience to flow from hearts that are for him. Not, not just actions performed out of a sense of requirement. There is a wrong way to follow God in which we fulfill duty and we fulfill service, but it's ultimately rooted in religion. And it's in this kind of atmosphere that a practice like baptism will become merely a ritual to be performed as opposed to a deeply meaningful step of faith that we have to take. Let me just give you a personal example from my own life. I many of you know my story. I grew up in a, a non-Christian home. We went to a United Church on Sunday mornings. We my parents wanted to give us a faith background. It meant nothing. We went to church on Sunday and then through the week nothing. And so, we went to United Church and at around the age of 11 or 12, you have to go through confirmation, right? And so I had to go through confirmation at the age of 12. Well, it was merely a ritual. It meant absolutely nothing to me. It was just something that I had to do. I didn't know the Lord. I I certainly didn't love the Lord. And and if anything, that tradition, that practice that I had to go through, pushed me further from the Lord. And I'll tell you why. Because as a 12-year-old, I remember thinking, well, if this is what following God is, where's the value in it? It doesn't mean anything. If it's just, okay, well, you have to go through confirmation. You have to check that box. Okay, check the box. It's so empty. And it actually pushed me further from the Lord because it meant nothing to me. We can do good things in our faith, which are ultimately of no value. Because the Lord sees the heart. This is what Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees for. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And I think about that verse. When I read that rebuke from Jesus, I recognize that was me at the age of 12 going through confirmation. My lips honored him, my heart was nowhere close to him. As a 12 year old, I think, Well, I don't know if I can fully take the blame for that, but those who certainly encouraged me to go through it without caring to check if I had any sort of faith, if it meant anything to me, certainly need to answer for that. I was put in a position to honor God with my lips when my heart was far from him. And so we want to follow Jesus in all things in a way that is rooted in relationship, where we Don't simply perform rituals because it's what you do. We walk in obedience because we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, fulfilling the first commandment. And so whether it's baptism or any other practice in the church, that is the heart that we should have in pursuing it. And I believe... One of the conditions that helps us to approach things the way that the Lord desires us to approach them is first that we have to really understand them. And so let's answer that second question. What does baptism mean? And I want to consider three things that baptism means with you. And the first one is this. Baptism expresses that we have been ransomed through Christ and now experience newness of life in him and will be resurrected as he was. I'll say that again because that's a a mouthful. Baptism expresses that we have been ransomed through Christ and now experience newness of life in him and will be resurrected as he was. And this is depicted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 that Kyle read for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We're going to spend some time in Romans 6. But I want to jump back before that to the end of Romans 5 before Romans 6 because Paul makes a statement at the end of Romans 5, in verse 21, that is the basis for the rhetorical question that he opens Romans 6 with. He says in Romans 5, 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says that apart from faith in Jesus, We are dead and sin reigned in our lives. And this is what every man and every woman is born into. We are dead in our trespasses and enslaved to sin apart from Jesus Christ. But then Paul says, through Jesus Christ, we have eternal life because we are covered by his righteousness thanks to the great exchange that happened on the cross. And now because of that, grace reigns. We go from death where sin reigns to eternal life where grace reigns reigns. And Paul's referring to the fact that a fundamental change occurs in us through our faith in Jesus Christ, which leads Paul to ask the rhetorical question in Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Because that happened. Death and sin to life and grace. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It's a fascinating question that Paul asks, rhetorical question, and my guess is that it's rooted in a false belief that was going around in the church in Rome that cheapened the cross of Jesus Christ. You can kind of see what Paul is referring to in that question. Right? He's, he's referring to the fact that this idea must have been that since grace reigns, well, why worry about fleeing from sin? If... If we're guaranteed grace and we're guaranteed forgiveness from the Lord, well, who cares about sin? Whatever. It's not a big deal. I'm justified. Grace reigns. And Paul understands the seriousness of that misconception. To say that, well, since grace reigns, my sin no no longer matters. It's a misconception that can only come from hearts that don't grasp the magnificence of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so Paul goes to work destroying arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, as he says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. It says, by no means, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's an amazing verse. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul wants us to understand the gravity of how fundamentally wrong the thought that since grace reigns, we can continue in sin is. You know, the, the, the English translation, by no means, captures the importance of rebuking such an idea. But it actually leaves a gap in the fullness of Paul's thought here that I hope to fill in for us as we look at this. Because the Greek word that's translated by no means is this word, gin om ahi. And what it literally means is to come into being, to become, or to be born. And so when we prepare that meaning with the question that follows, how can we, who died to sin, still live in it? we can comprehend the significance of what Paul's saying. There's a fundamental change that occurs in our being when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus talks about this with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, right? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says in verse 3 or chapter 3, 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Spirit. Paul understands that when an individual comes to Jesus Christ, it's not just about a changed lifestyle. It's not just about following new ideas. It is a complete change within that person where they become a brand new creation, where they are born again of the Spirit They're given a new heart by God so that the old has passed away and the new is come and is filled with the fullness of God. And in light of that, Paul is saying to continue in sin, to live in it would be akin to being born or becoming again once we what we once were before Jesus. It would mean becoming the old self again. And look what he says about the old self in verse six. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, And so in Paul's mind, to continue in sin, to live in it, we would have to literally raise from the dead our old self that was crucified with Christ, that is dead, that is buried, that is gone. We are no longer slaves to sin. In King James Version, it renders by no means as God forbid. And I think that is so fitting. God forbid that we would become again what we once were, voiding the cross of Christ and death that he had died to sin. How can one who is dead to sin as we now are still live in it? You can't. And this is one of the reasons that I personally believe in the eternal security of the man or woman who comes to faith in Christ. If my old self is dead, how can I then go back to what I once was? I can't. It's dead and buried with Christ. It's amazing. Now, I am not, nor is Paul, saying that you're perfect. Perfect. We still sin. But we are not enslaved to it. It doesn't mean perfection. It means it no longer has mastery over us. You know what the cross literally means? That you have a legal right to say no to sin. It has no mastery over you. You are not enslaved anymore. You can say no to it. And you have the power through Jesus Christ to do so. It's amazing. It means we no longer continue in the same patterns of sin that we once walked in. And it means that the greatest power that sin has over humanity, shame and death, are broken off of us. Because we are forgiven, we are free. How can we walk in shame if we have been forgiven by? The God Creator of the universe Himself, the One who made us, shame no longer has hold, and death no longer has hold. That's why the Scriptures can say, "Death, where is your sting?" It's gone. And there's so much to unpack in that, and I'd love to just sit there for a long time, but that's beyond this morning. We're gonna dig into the letter of Romans very soon, I think, as a church, and oh, we'll, we'll dig into that. It'll be beautiful. But let's consider the main point of what Paul's teaching in the rest of these verses. He says in in verse five, for if we've been unified with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Mm -hmm. Through faith, we have a union with Christ in death, a death like his. And if we're united in a death like his, we will certainly be united in a resurrection like his. And that sounds great, but what does it mean? Well, Paul says, notice he says, a death like his and a resurrection like his. He's pointing to the fact that our experience isn't exactly like Christ's, but we receive the benefits of his death and his resurrection. That through faith, there is a union between him and us so that what happened to him on the cross is counted by God as happening to us. His death becomes our death which means that the life that he now lives post-resurrection becomes our life. And Paul explains what that means for us in the remaining verses. Let's just read them. Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And there's, there's a lot there that we can unpack, but, but we can personalize that statement there. When Jesus Christ died on, died on the cross, God counted my old self, the self that was rebellious against him, that was headed for destruction as dead, meaning the death that everyone who will die apart from Christ at the end of their natural life, which leads to judgment, I've already experienced and that judgment has been rendered not guilty because Jesus Christ bore it for me. And so now I live to God. And though I'm still going to experience natural death, it is merely a doorway to which I must pass in order to continue living eternally in the presence of God. Amazing. So then, another way that we're dead to sin is that our future is secure in him. Our future is guaranteed. Guaranteed. The old is gone. But what does all of this have to do with baptism? Well, Paul puts it together for us in verses three and four. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism represents all that we've just been looking at, that that we have been unified with Christ in his death, that we've been buried with him, which is signified in baptism by being fully immersed under the water. As Christ died and was buried in the tomb, and just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father from death, we come up out of the water to signify that we've been raised to new life. We've been washed clean by the glory of God the Father. Baptism expresses that we have been ransomed through Christ and now experience newness of life in Him, and we will be resurrected as He was. It is glorious. The waters of baptism. Second thing that baptism is, you're like, oh my gosh, he's only on number two. The other ones are quicker. (laughs) Baptism baptism is an appeal to God. Baptism is an appeal to God. In 1 Peter, the apostle corresponds baptism to Noah and the ark. And and while this is a highly disputed text that I'm not going to get into, especially verse 19, it's important to look at what it says about baptism. Starting in verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I'm not touching that. <laughs> because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the Catholic Church reads this text and interprets it as meaning that baptism itself saves the individual. Because Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And so the Catholic Church concludes baptism saves, which is why they practice infant baptism. However, I believe that the rest of verse 21 gives important context to what Peter says. And it makes it clear that he's not saying the act of baptism itself saves. He writes, baptism now saves. And the rest of verse 21 provides immediate context for this not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Peter says, it's not this, but it's this. So let's look at those two parts. First, he says, baptism is not a removal of dirt from the body. Well, in the Greek, the word removal means a putting off or a laying down of something. And and Peter uses the same word in 2 Peter 1, 14 to describe the laying down of his life. And then if we pair that with the Greek word that's translated dirt, which is a word that means filthy or morally unfit or depraved. And I think it's evident Peter is saying Baptism does not put off your filth or depravity, which is what we need to be saved. So then what is it about? Well, he then says, baptism is an appeal to God, which can also be translated an earnest seeking or a response, meaning baptism signifies an act of of the heart, an act of faith, a response to God that expresses our posture of looking to him for a good conscience. And how does such a good conscience come? Well, it comes through Jesus Christ. Right, that's what Peter says right there in the verse through Jesus Christ, and so I think Peter is saying baptism is an act of faith, a response to God, demonstrating faith that through Jesus Christ we have a good conscience before Him, or in other words, we are reconciled to Him. Because that's what happens when we get a good conscience; we become reconciled to. God. And it is in that sense that Peter refers to baptism as saving us because it's an affirmation of the saving faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, and I think if we look at how Peter actually connects baptism to Noah and the ark, it makes that very, very clear. Right? What brought Noah and his family through the waters? It wasn't the waters themselves. It was their faith in God. God brought them through because of their faith, right? Noah built the ark in response to God through faith. They got into the ark with all the animals in response to God through faith. And what happened to all of those who did not have faith in God, who were rebellious to God, they didn't go through the water. They didn't make it through. And so I think when we look at what Peter relates to Noah and the ark, it's clear he's talking that baptism is an act of faith. Which leads me to my last point. Baptism is an expression of an individual's faith. A public expression of an individual's faith. And I want to just tie this very briefly into how we practice baptism here. We believe that baptism is the full immersion of a believer in water, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That it is an act of obedience, symbolizing that believer's faith in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen, which bought their own death to sin, their own newness of life, the old self, has died, and they are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And all of the reasons for why we practice baptism this way relates to what I just talked about. Jesus commanded us to make disciples and then baptize them. And so that's what we do. In every instance of baptism in the New Testament, belief always came first. And just like my confirmation at age 12, the way that I view it is just like that confirmation age 12 that meant nothing to me. Baptism for the individual being baptized means nothing apart from faith. The whole movement of the New Testament is toward the individual's faith before God. Lived out in a community, not lived out as an individual, but lived out in a community, amongst the family of believers, but ultimately each of us will stand before the Lord and give account of our own faith. And if salvation is truly through faith alone, then baptism without faith does nothing. And so wait until there is faith to baptize.